Matthew 7. We have spent the past three months studying the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we come to the end of what is the greatest sermon ever preached. Um, But it does not end the way we might expect. If you listen to sermons today by famous preachers online, a lot of them will end their, uh, their sermons with like an emotional story or some sort of helpful tips on having a better life. But Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a very serious challenge. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 21 of Matthew 7. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, like I said, this is not the ending that we would expect. Especially because if you remember the way Jesus began this sermon, what did he say? Look at this. This is Matthew 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's how he began. But then he ends this sermon with sort of a harsh reality. That's not most people. Most people, he says, are on a wide road to destruction. Most people will be swept away with the wicked because they built their house on the sand. Many of the people who name and claim Jesus on the last day will be called workers of lawlessness. Okay, so this is not a chicken soup for the soul kind of ending. Instead, it is a clear and powerful call to repentance. 
And so I want us to look closely and break this down, beginning again, verse 21. We're going to go back to it. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want you to notice two things here. First, is that Jesus does not dispute the claims of the people in verse 22. They claim to prophesy. They claim to cast out demons. They claim to do many mighty works in the name of Jesus. And Jesus does not dispute those claims. Jesus does not call them liars. He doesn't say, no, you didn't didn't do those things. He simply says, I never knew you. In other words, according to the text, It may be possible to do even mighty works in the name of Jesus and not belong to Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second, Jesus clearly says that those who will enter heaven or the kingdom of heaven are those that do the will of my father. And what does that sound like? To do the will of the Father. Jesus has not used that phrase until now. It would be easy for us to confuse this with good works, right? So, to do the will of the Father is to do good things, to do good works. But actually, verse 22 suggests that's not what Jesus has in mind at all. To help us understand that phrase, what I want to do is I want to look two other places. One is found later in Matthew, the other is found in John 6, where Jesus uses these words, will of my Father. So let's look first at Matthew twelve fifty. He says, Forever who do, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if you go to that passage and you read it in context, What Jesus is doing there is he's drawing a sharp line between his earthly biological family and his spiritual family. And he's saying that those who do the will of my father are my family. He is also their father. You see that? And so look at um, now look at John six, verse 40. Jesus says, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So if you're thinking will of my Father is like a list of things to do, John 6.40 says something very different. If you put it all together, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? According to Jesus, it means looking to Him in faith and being united to Him in His death and resurrection, becoming part of His family. Which reminds me of Psalm 2. 
Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is I'm focusing on this because it's it's crucial as we end the Sermon on the Mount to to get this. Or else the entire sermon will not make sense. Because we very easily confuse this issue. Our tendency is to come to Jesus with proof of our works, of our righteousness. Here, Jesus, this is what I've done for you. I've been a good servant, been a good follower. Here's all the evidence. But Jesus is far more concerned with the heart with proof of our faith, if you will. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Because union with Christ, though it will produce good works, our works are not the foundation. I am not in a relationship with Jesus because of the good things that I have done for him. And this is exactly what Jesus means when he uses this final illustration about the sand and the rock. Jesus is not encouraging us just to build our house on any rock. He specifically uses in the Greek the definite article. He says, is your house built on ton petron? Is your house built on the rock? Not a rock. The rock. Psalm 18 says this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my Stronghold. Notice the number of personal possessive pronouns that David attaches to God. He is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my shield. You see it over and over and over again. David is in no danger of being cast out on the last day because... He knows where his security rests. Is it in David? Absolutely not. It is in his God. His rock. Now, if you wanted, if you wanted to read the Sermon on the Mount with a self-righteous lens, you could easily do that. Jesus gives us a lot of commands. He sets the bar really, really high. And if you wanted to walk away from the sermon feeling good about yourself and sort of judging others by the standard that you read into the Sermon on the Mount, you could try to do that. But what you would be doing is building your house on the sand. 
And truthfully, my tendency and the tendency of every preacher is to preach law instead of grace. I fight it every single week. Every week. I would rather preach it and you'd rather hear it. And you may question that, but here's the honest truth of our humanity. We like the concept of grace, but in practice it makes us very uncomfortable. A friend of mine posted this quote by Martin Luther. I thought it was really good, so I want to share it with you. Because I think it provides a much better lens for looking at the Sermon on the Mount. He says, as long as a person thinks he is right, he's going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. He's going to hate God, despise His grace and mercy, and ignore the promises in Christ. The gospel of the free forgiveness of sins through Christ will never appeal to the self-righteous. Notice he says, it will never appeal to you in your self-righteousness. He says, this monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And that is what the law is. It's a big axe. Accordingly, the proper use and function of the law is to threaten until the conscience is scared stiff. And I think this is the right way to think about the high standard that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a big axe and it is meant to cut down the monster of our own self-righteousness. This sermon is not a call for us to become more holy by trying harder. It is a call to holy living by grace through faith in Jesus. It is an axe to cut down the pride and the self-righteousness that daily creeps back into our hearts. The Gospel tells us that two men were crucified with Jesus. One on the right and one on the left. Both of those men were thieves. Matthew tells us that both of them mocked Jesus along with the crowds. But Luke tells us that one of those men had a change of heart moments before Jesus died. And he says this, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
One of my favorite living preachers is um, a man named Alistair Begg. And I love the way he tells the story here. And so I am uh, borrowing from him almost word for word, telling you so I don't get play, you know, stuck with plagiarism or whatever. Uh, but it's just, it's really, really good. And some of you may have seen this, this clip uh, of one of his sermons go around over the last few years. Um, but he uses the old question, which is an old kind of evangelism question. He says, if you were to die tonight and God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Y'all heard that question. Some of you may have heard that question before. And he says, if you answer that question in the first person, you've already gone wrong. So if your answer to that question is because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I did this, because I did that, because I tried, because I'm a good person. If your answer starts that way, it's the wrong answer. He says the only right answer is in the third person. Why should I let you into heaven? Because He. Because He. But then He says, I want you to think about the thief on the cross. Okay? This guy was mocking Jesus with everyone else. He'd never been to church. He'd never attended a Bible study. He'd never been baptized. And yet, he makes it in. And Beg says, I want you to imagine the exchange. Like, Let's take that question, that old evangelism question. Now let's say that the thief shows up. He dies on the cross. He, he shows up moments later at the gates of heaven. And there's an angel there to meet him. And the angel says, what are you doing here? And the thief replies, well, I don't know. And the angel says, well, what do you mean you, you don't know? And the, and the thief says, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. And the angel says, okay, excuse me, I need to go get my supervisor. And so he goes and gets the supervisor angel, and the supervisor angel comes out and says, we've got a few questions for you. The first question he asks is, okay, first of all, do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith? And the man replies, Never heard of it in my whole life. <laughs> the angel says, what about the doctrine of Scripture? And the man says, nope. And finally, in frustration, the angel just says, well, on what basis are you here? And the man says, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. And Beg says, that is the only answer, right? And if I don't preach the cross to myself every single day, then what happens is I begin to find myself again 
trusting in myself, trusting in my experiences, which is part of my sinful nature as a human being to do that. And that's the shifting sand, believing that my salvation is dependent upon me. Believing that the right answer to that question is because I did something, because I obeyed, because I kept the law, because I did what was required of me. And as soon as you go there, it is going to lead you either to despair or to arrogance. You're going to feel helpless and hopeless because I can't do it. I'll never be good enough. Or your response will be, I can do this. I have been good enough. And neither of those is entirely correct. Instead, the man on the middle cross bids us to come. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You so much for um, preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We thank You for the words of invitation. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are weak. Um... Lord, we thank You for the challenge that if we are depending on ourselves, then that's not us. We ask You to help us in our hearts to identify whether we're putting trust in something besides You or someone besides You. And if that's the case, I pray that You would lead us to repentance and faith in You that we might do the will of Your Father. You've been gracious to us. You've been good to us in providing a way. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to trust You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.